Today's topic is endocarditis. Endocarditis is when endocardium gets colonized by microbial agents and the microbe starts actively multiplying and damaging the endocardium. So put in a more simple way, it means inflammation of the inner layer of the heart. I will talk about the different types of endocarditis, but I will mainly focus on infective endocarditis because this is the most common type. You are listening to MedMins, a podcast to refresh your medical knowledge. I'm your host, Alisa Saleh. Now I'll be talking about the different types of endocarditis. I'll be mentioning five different types. First, infective endocarditis, also called bacterial endocarditis. This one is the most common type. Second, rheumatic endocarditis, which is immune-mediated. Third, carcinoid syndrome, where we see serotonin being produced in massive amounts into the bloodstream that leads to fibrotic thickening of the heart. Fourth, marantic endocarditis, where we see the blood hypercoagulate, which leads to thrombi. And fifth, Lipman sac endocarditis. Let's talk about infective endocarditis. It is an infection caused by a bacteria that enter the bloodstream and settle in the heart lining. Depending on the person's condition, the virulence of the bacteria and the onset of the disease, we divide infective endocarditis into acute and subacute infective endocarditis. Before I start going into more details, I just want to add few words into each of them to give you a short overview of what I'm going to talk about. So acute infective endocarditis, we are dealing with highly virulent bacteria, very pathogenic. The bacteria that is most commonly involved is Staphylococcus aureus. This bacteria is so pathogenic that it can even cause infection in individuals with no existing cardiac disease. This means that the bacteria does not require a vulnerable site to start causing an infection. On the other hand, we have subacute infective endocarditis that involves low virulence bacteria and less destructive. For example, Streptococcus viridens, which is part of our normal oral flora. If this bacteria enter the bloodstream of individuals with already existing pathological condition, it can cause problems. But this bacteria is not strong enough to attack a healthy heart. In general, Endocardium is relatively resistant to thrombus formation and colonization of bacteria. So even if bacteremia happens over and over again in a patient with healthy heart, nothing might happen. But patients who are predisposed to disease, even organisms with low virulence might cause problems. Let's continue our focus on subacute type of infective endocarditis. Any area of the heart that is exposed to turbulent blood flow can be affected by infective endocarditis. It is often the valves that are exposed to turbulent blood flow, especially narrow cardiac valve or any other valvular diseases. Turbulence of blood flow causes damage to endocardial lining. This damage causes the underlying collagen and tissue factors to form platelets and fibrin to adhere, which then forms tiny thrombosis or blood clot. This is called non-bacterial thrombotic endocarditis. So whenever abnormal blood flow, the patient is more susceptible to infective endocarditis, 
So this can be in conditions like rheumatic heart diseases with mitral stenosis, mitral valve prolapse, bicuspid aortic valve, calcific aortic valve, and ventricular septal defect. All these makes the patient more susceptible to infective endocarditis. Also important to mention is prosthetic valve endocarditis. Here the bacteria involved is Staphylococcus epidermidis. Let's say we have a predisposed destructive endocardium due to some kind of valvular disease. So a bacteria with low-grade virulence like Streptococcus viridens arrives to the site of non-bacterial thrombotic endocarditis. As mentioned earlier, it is a vegetation on cardiac valves that consist of fibrin and platelet aggregates without the bacteria yet. So now when the bacteria comes to the site, it will attach easily and start a slow chronic inflammation. So now on this side, there will be produced macrophages, lymphocytes, and also neutrophils, but neutrophils less than what is seen in the acute type. The bacteria start tightly attaching due to fibrosis and not as easily broken down as in acute endocarditis. This mass of platelets, fibrin, microcolonies of microorganisms and scant inflammatory cells is called vegetations. So how can we prevent subacute infective endocarditis? Well, individuals with high risk for infective endocarditis have to pay special attention to their dental health, brushing and flossing teeth and to get regular dental checkups. Often they are recommended by their doctors to take antibiotics prior dental surgery or any endoscopic surgery to protect the heart because microorganisms can enter the bloodstream and travel to the heart. Subacute infective endocarditis have non-specific features of systemic infections like fatigue, low-grade fever, weight loss due to continuous releasing of cytokines. Cardiac complications might therefore occur later due to the slow destruction of the cardiac tissue. Let's now move to acute infective endocarditis. So what happens here? Well, very virulent organism binds to the healthy endocardium. It enters to the endocardium and starts multiplying. It starts inflammatory reaction, where formation of platelets, fibrin, binds to the injured area. There will be produced massive amounts of microbes and more inflammatory cells. Acute inflammatory cells like neutrophils and monocytes release destructive products as well as lymphocytes. So, this rapidly and aggressive vegetation with lots of microbes white blood cells and destructive products becomes large and can easily break down. Pieces of vegetations can embolize to the general circulation. This is called septic emboli. Septic emboli is a type of embolism that is infected with bacteria. They can stick to the cerebellar circulation, produce infraction in the brain, and then produce abscesses which can be seen in myocardium, spleen, kidney, which is called metastatic abscesses. Acute infective endocarditis can also cause ulcerative and perforative lesions because of the highly destructive bacteria. 
So who are in risk for developing infective endocarditis? Well, it can be anyone who are more vulnerable to infections. It can be, for example, patients with autoimmune disease like AIDS, patients suffering with neutropenia, diabetic patients, or IV drug abusers because they share needles that are not sterilized. And often you find multiple organisms in their circulations because drug abusers keep continuously injection and they can push multiple types of microbes into their circulation. It can be patients with catheter, it can also be a pregnant woman because they are more susceptible to infections. It can also be patients under therapeutic immunosuppressing drugs, for example autoimmune disease or cancer or patients who got a liver transplant to prevent immune-mediated reaction towards the transplanted tissue. The clinical aspect. There can be signs and symptoms like fever, sweating, weakness, weight loss, splenomegaly, cardiac murmurs. There can also be petechia, which is red spots on the skin, or osseous nodes, which is subcutaneous nodules found on hands and feet. There can be Janeway lesions, which is found on the palms and the soles. There can be rot spots, which is retinal hemorrhages. Also splinter hemorrhage, which is a tiny blood clots that tend to run vertically under the nails. Splinter hemorrhages are not specific to any particular condition, but one of the conditions can be infective endocarditis. Duke's criteria for diagnosing of infective endocarditis. So, this is a set of clinical criteria for diagnosis of infective endocarditis, which exists of major and minor criteria. So, for diagnosing, the requirement is either one of those options two major and one minor criteria, or one major and three minor or lastly, five minor criteria. So what are the major and minor criteria? The major criteria includes blood cultures positive for infective endocarditis or a positive echocardiogram findings where it shows evidence of endocardial involvement. And minor criteria can be predisposing factors like intravenous drug users or predisposing heart condition. Second, it can be patients who have temperature above 38 Celsius. Third, it can be vascular involvement, for example, major arterial emboli, septic emboli, pulmonary infarcts, mycotic aneurysm, intracranial hemorrhages, conjunctival hemorrhages, and painless skin lesions. It can be immunological findings, like for example, glomerulonephritis, painful nodes, like osseous nodes, and retinal hemorrhages with small, clear centers, like seen in rough spots, and positive rheumatoid factor. And lastly, microbial evidence. Here it can be a positive blood culture which are not meeting a major criteria or serological evidence of an active infection with an organism known to cause infective endocarditis. Now to the last part of this podcast where I'll be talking about the different types of endocarditis. So in this podcast I've been mainly talking about infective endocarditis which is the most common type. 
But now I will add a few words to rheumatic endocarditis, marantic endocarditis, Lipman sac disease, and carcinoid syndrome. So starting with rheumatic endocarditis. It is immune-mediated damage to the valves, small vegetations along the valve lining is produced, vegetations that are sterile, consisting of just platelets and fibrin. And very important to remember is that they do not contain microorganisms. They don't detach and embolize compared to the infective endocarditis, which is not sterile, which is septic vegetation and has many inflammatory cells and produce destructive microorganisms and can easily detach. Next is marantic endocarditis. This occurs when blood has tendency to coagulate very easily, which is seen in any conditions that leads to blood becoming more coagulant. For example, malignancies, where mucin is released into blood and mucin is procoagulant. It can also be in acute promyolocytic leukemia, which also releases substances that are procoagulant. So in this condition, they are easily attached to endocardium and they can easily form thromboembolism. Usually they are sterile but they can become infected. Next we have Lipman sac disease. This is due to immunological process again where we see vegetations having a lot of platelets and fibrin and sticking tightly with the valve which consists of inflammatory cells. Lastly we have carcinoid syndrome. Carcinoid syndrome is mostly formed in the gastrointestinal tract and the lungs. When a primary tumor is located in the GI tract, it will release its chemical substances into the bloodstream, which then goes to the portal system where it gets destroyed in the liver. But if the tumor forms a secondary tumor located in the liver itself, the substances released from the secondary tumor now goes directly to the right side of the heart, which then causes intense fibrotic thickening of the right heart and then causes dysfunction of tricuspid valve. On the other hand, if the primary tumor develops in the lungs, it directly goes to the left side of the heart and causes dysfunction of the mitral valve. Thank you very much for listening. If you have any topics that you want me to cover or any feedback, go to medmins.net. I would love to hear from you. Take care and see you soon.